podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. good boys and girls welcome to the two-footed podcast it is tuesday the 6th of july we're brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider a virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location access things like american netflix hbo go whatever it is you want to do also keeps your data safe libertyshield.com epl vpn is the code to use at checkout you get 20 percent off the hardware or software packages, libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, it is European Championship semi-final day. Spain versus Italy tonight, 8 p.m. from Wembley. This, I think, is the more glamorous of the two. I think it'll be potentially the more entertaining game of the two. Italy come into this game in, I would suggest, better form. They topped Group A. They beat Turkey very convincingly, beat Switzerland very convincingly. And even though it was only a 1-0, they beat Wales convincingly as well. Never in doubt that game, Italy rested most of their starting 11 and came through very comfortably. In the quarterfinal, in the round of 16, rather, they took on Austria. Tight game. Italy were the better team, but Austria did give them a scare. Nil-nil at 90 minutes into extra time. Italy win 2-1. Chiesa and Pessina. Uh, Kalidzic with the late consolation for the Austrians. And then last time out, they beat Belgium. The number one ranked team in the world. The team many people thought pre-tournament were... If not the favourites to win it, certainly second behind France. But Italy defeated them and looked excellent doing so. Barella put them 1-0 up. Insigne made it 2. It should have been 3 at that point. Chiesa had missed a good chance. Lukaku did make it 2-1 just before half time from a penalty. But bar a couple of pot shots, a little bit of magic from Jeremy Doku... Belgium nearly, never really threatened them in the second half. You could see Kevin De Bruyne had a very good first half, but you could see he wasn't 100% fit, and he faded badly in the second second half of the game. Roberto Martinez's management of that game, atrocious. Mancini's management of the game, brilliant. The control that the Italians maintained was exceptional. Defensively, they were pretty much perfect. Barring Di Lorenzo fouling Doku for the penalty, the Italian defence was pretty much perfect throughout. They learned how to deal with Lukaku as the game went on. Cellini took the more physical approach, Benucci sweeping in behind. That pairing, they know each other so well, they figure everything out on the fly. They are legendary defenders. Legendary defenders. There's no other way to describe them. At their best, they were both world-class, either as a two or as part of a three with Barzagli. They've been around, they've seen it all, they've done it all. This is their moment now on the international scene. At the end of their careers, back together for Italy and looking like the best centre-back pairing in the competition. For the Spanish, they weren't as impressive through the group. A nil-nil draw with Sweden where they had some luck. Now, they dominated the game. They had nearly 80% of the ball. But they struggled to cope with Isaac up front for the Swedes. And his pace and ability to counter almost hurt Spain a couple of times. In the second game, they went 1-0 up against Poland. And then Lewandowski scored and it stayed 1-1. And we saw Poland be quite poor in this tournament. So that was a very disappointing result for Spain. They did wallop Slovakia. Now, they were given quite a big helping hand by Dubravka. 
and then by the uh, Slovakian defence, and then by the rest of the team as things just capitulated for Slovakia. But 5-0 is 5-0. You take it how you get it. On they went in second place. From there, they've been pretty entertaining, it must be said. Uh, They took on Croatia in the round of 16. They were 3-1 up with five minutes to go. They threw that away because you don't do things easy. Into extra time they went. Morata and Ayarzabal made it 5-3 and got them through. They played Switzerland, who'd conquered France. The biggest shock of the tournament, I think, was Switzerland beating France. Again, Spain go one up, throw that away. Shakiri makes it 1-1. Game goes to penalties. Busquets miss. Gavranovic scores, and you think, oh, oh, Switzerland are going to do it again. But Shar misses, Akanji misses, and Vargas misses. Rodri would miss for Spain, but Almo, Gerard Moreno, and Iarzabal would all score. And Spain would be through. And that puts Spain in this game. Put Spain in a semi-final, which I think pre-tournament would have been seen as about right. But I think everybody thought they might come through as semi-finalists on the other side of the bracket. Because they were expected to top that group. Had they topped that group, they would have played Ukraine and then England. And then they'd be moving into a semi-final potentially against the Danes. But here they are, having fallen through the group, having nearly fallen apart against Croatia, having nearly fallen apart against Switzerland. They find themselves in the semi-final and they, they will have to be respected. Unai Simon's a good goalkeeper. We know what Aspilicueta is. We've seen him in the Premier League for a decade now. We know what a good defender he is. We know what a good defender Americ Laporte is. Prior to his injury in the, nine, in, the tw- in the 1920 season, I would have said he was the second best centre-back in the league after Van Dijk. Now, he's playing in a little bit of a strange position here in that he's playing as a right-side centre-back rather than as a left-side centre-back, which is where he's more comfortable. Pau Torres is playing that left-side centre-back role. We've seen how good he can be for Villarreal. There's a lot of top clubs interested in him this summer. He's got a buyout somewhere in the region of 50 to 60 million. Manchester United, Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain have all been linked with him. He's a quality player. And we know what Jordi Alba can do from left-back. He's been around. He's done it all. So individually, that back four are all good to very good players. The problem is they'd never played together prior to this tournament. And you've got a left-footed, left-side centre-back playing as a right-side centre-back, a position he probably has never played before prior to declaring for Spain. Obviously, French-born, but massive Spanish connections and spent a long time with Bilbao. The defence has been a weak point for Spain. We've seen rotation at centre-back. Remember, Marcus Lorriente started the tournament at right-back. He's a midfielder, an attack-minded midfielder. He started the tournament at right-back. Aspilicueta came in when Lorente wasn't playing well. We've seen rotation in the middle. Eric Garcia has been in. We've seen Torres as the right centre-back and Laporte as the left one. We've seen Garcia and Laporte, and now we see Laporte on the right, Torres on the left. Now, I think the main reason for Laporte on the right and Torres on the left, is that Aspilicueta is more of a defensive right-back than an attack-minded right-back. So he can shift across and form a back three. Aspilicueta, Laporte in the middle, where he is very comfortable, and then Torres on the left. Torres has played left-back in his career. He's more than comfortable playing on the left of a back three. He's quick. He reads the game quite well. So that can work. And... Barring the catastrophe for the Swiss goal, they did look a lot better defensively. They looked a lot more solid, a lot more aware of what they were trying to do. In front of them, Koke is a tremendous player. He's been brilliant for Atletico Madrid for a decade now. He's their captain. He's a leader. Not Spain's captain. He's the captain of Atletico Madrid. He's a leader. He's won two La Liga titles. He's been to Champions League finals. He's been there and done it. He knows how it works. Busquets has won everything. World Club, World Cup, 
European Championships, Champions Leagues, league titles. Busquets has done it all. And he's done it all while forging a reputation for himself as one of, if not the best, defensive midfielders of all time. Not an overly physical player, not a player who relies on speed or aggression or physicality. He reads the game better than anyone that's ever played that position. He understands the game at a level that most of us can't even think of. Vincente Del Bosque once said, if you watch the game, you may not see Busquets, but if you watch Busquets, you'll see the whole game. And for me anyway, that changed my watching of Barcelona and Spain, was to just watch him and you begin to get a far greater understanding of how their system works. Over the years, he's become much more involved in the build-up play, much more of of a dictator, a passer of the ball, always was very good technically. But his ability to create from deep is massively overlooked. His intelligence, his ability to be two steps ahead of everybody else, which is why he doesn't require pace. He knows where the ball is going to be. He knows where a man is going to make a run. And his job isn't to meet that runner head on, isn't to tackle that runner, isn't to take the ball off them. It's to shepherd that runner into a channel into a channel where the left-back can step up. And now Spain have a 2v1. And when that that runner turns round to look for a teammate, he's got a flanking midfielder, Pedri in this case, Iniesta famously, coming back in. And that's what, Spain, what's, that's what Spain and Barcelona were always great at. It wasn't that they would tackle you to take the ball off you. They would trap you and force you to give the ball away. Busquets was key to all of that. To divert runners towards the fullbacks and allow Xavi from the right or Iniesta from the left to drop back in. And all of, all of a sudden they'd form a defensive triangle and players found themselves trapped. And they'd either play a risky pass or they'd try and beat one of them on the dribble, which wasn't going to work. Busquets still does that very, very well. What he struggles with a little bit now is just raw pace that goes by him off the ball. That will cause him trouble. That's maybe where Italy will have some some joy today. They don't have raw pace, but they do have quick runners, especially Barella. Pedri's a superstar in the making. He's not quite there yet, but we've seen how incredibly gifted he is. The midfield of Spain is probably their strength. Their ability to keep the ball, to dictate the game, to pick apart defences, especially in the last few games, that has worked very well. The issue for them has been up front. Because I think the centre-back issue, the defensive issue as a whole, has largely been solved with Aspilicueta in at right-back and Laporte as the right of the two centre-backs and the switch to that three. Alba still gets forward. And then Ferran Torres provides the width on the right. So that back three can stay as a back three. Busquets in front of them. And if they get caught in transition, Busquets will drop into centre-back. Torres and Aspie will go to full-back positions, and it's just a flat-back four. And it works well for them. The goal Switzerland got came from a miscommunication, an individual error. It didn't come from a systemic error. So I think the defence should be okay. The midfield is good. It's a position of strength. But up front is where they have a problem. Ferran Torres has been hit and miss in this competition. He's got a few goals. But he hasn't played consistently well. Morata hasn't played well. And he's missed a lot of chances. Now, we know he's going to miss chances. That's kind of his calling card. But what he's always done is made up for it in other areas. And in this tournament, I don't think he always has made up for it. I think he's been a passenger in a couple of games. The other forward role, we've seen Dani Almo play there. We've seen... Sarabia play there. I would have liked to have seen Oyarzabal play there. Hasn't happened yet. We've seen Jared Moreno play there. Didn't work at all. I don't know that Spain have the goal threat to really trouble this Italian defence. Benucci and Cialini have been teammates of Morata's on multiple occasions at Juve. Including now. So they know 
everything he has to offer. They know all about his game. And he knows all about their game as well, but they're a different caliber of player than he is. As I said earlier, they were world class. They're still great defenders. They may lack a little bit of pace. They may play a little bit deeper now. Bonucci may not carry the ball into midfield anymore, but defensively, they still read the game better than anybody. Spinazzola been out at left back is a big blow for Italy. He'd been really important in their attacking play and he was defending very, very well in this competition. Emerson Palmieri is the likely replacement. He's a different type of player. He's not as good defensively and he's also left-footed. Spinazzola's right-footed. Now, what made him unique in this competition was that he could drive forward and go infield and leave the flank to Insigne. Or he could go outside and Insigne could come in field. Emerson's not going to do that. Emerson's going to go on the outside every single time. Now that can work. But you may not get the full range of what Insigne can offer if he's always having to drift in field. If he can't hold that bit of width from time to time. Di Lorenzo came in at right back for Florenzi. And I wonder, myself and Carol Match talked about this earlier, I wonder if either Florenzi or Di Lorenzo gets the nod at left back because they can offer that inside or outside threat. We know they've got a quality goalkeeper. We know the centre-backs are excellent. The full-back positions coming into the tournament look like a position of weakness for Italy and I think if Florenzi had stayed there it might have remained that but Di Lorenzo coming in he's been excellent and as I said Spinozola is outperforming his club performances substantially this is not the player you see for Roma week on week in midfield they've been brilliant whether it's Barella, Jorginho, Verratti Barella, Jorginho, Locatelli. It's worked. Pizzina's come in. He's done well. He's got two match-winning goals. Locatelli has scored two goals. Barella's got a couple of goals. Jorginho has been tremendous. Maybe, maybe the player of the tournament. Verratti has been brilliant since coming back into the team. When you add a world-class midfielder, it does tend to help. What makes them unique is that all three of them are capable of dictating the game. But also, all three of them work very, very hard off the ball. All three of them are capable of movement, changing the shape, offering an option, always being in the right position to receive the ball. Barella's the best of the three at making runs off the ball, at getting forward, being that extra runner into into the penalty box. Jorginho's best, obviously, in that sitting role, and Verratti kind of does everything, fills in everywhere. We've seen Verratti for a long time at Paris Saint-Germain. We've seen him for Italy. He's a phenomenal player. In many ways, it's a shame that he spent the majority of his career with PSG, rather than in, you know, the Premier League, La Liga, or, or Serie A playing for one of the biggest clubs. Because as much as you might try, when you start ranking the big five leagues, France is number five. And if you're going to set your weekend out to watch games, the French league is, unless there's a big clash, unless it's PSG Lyon, PSG Monaco, PSG Lille, PSG Marseille, you're not really going to watch a lot of those games. I'm not anyway, and I watch too much football. If he'd been with Juve, if he'd been with Bayern or Liverpool or United or Arsenal or whoever, Real tried to buy him a couple of times. Barca have wanted him for the better part of a decade. I think we'd appreciate more what an incredible player he is. I think he's vastly underrated because he plays for PSG. Barella, I think, is 
maybe the most informed midfielder in Europe right now, coming off a phenomenal season for Inter. And then obviously Jorginho won the Champions League, so he comes in full of confidence. It's rare that you look at Spain and say they don't have the best midfield. It's been 12, 13 years since you looked at Spain and thought, then they've got a better midfield than you. I think Italy have a better midfield than Spain. I would still take Busquets over Jorginho, but I would take Barella over Koke. I would take Verratti over Pedri. And I would take the Italian trio and how they work over the Spanish trio and how they work. Very similar setups, but I just think this, the Italians, they've worked out the kinks in theirs better than the, the Spaniards have. Up front, Chiesa's come in on the right-hand side for Berardi. He's looked really, really impressive. Berardi obviously started the tournament brilliantly, then kind of drifted a little bit, but he's still a great option. Immobile started in great goal-scoring form. Not scoring the goals at the moment, but his all-round performance is still good. His link-up play, his work off the ball, dropping into midfield to add an extra man when needed, being an outlet, making runs in behind, that, that's all still there. And Insigne has grown into the tournament. And he was outstanding against Belgium. They also have Balotti as an option. Like I mentioned, they have Berardi as an option. They have Bernadeschi as an option who can play anywhere across the front three. I would much rather have the Italian attack than the Spanish. I would rather have the Italian defence than the Spanish by quite a bit because of the two centre-backs. I think you can make an argument that individually Spain's defence is better. But collectively, just that understanding that Benucci and Cellini have from playing together over the last 10 years, I think that just gives them the nod. You take Donnarumma over Simon, as good as Simon is. And I think... I think I would go for the Italian midfield. I also think the Italians, because Locatelli has played quite a bit, because Piscina has played quite a bit, the Italian depth is more in tune with how the team is playing. Whereas the Spanish depth, the likes of Thiago, who for me should be starting over Pedri. And I think if he started over Pedri, I would then give the nod to the Spanish midfield three. But because he's barely played, he doesn't have his rhythm. And he doesn't need a whole lot of working back into the team, just the, na the nature of the player. But I do think Spain could be better in midfield with Thiago, but also with a bit more rotation, with a few more minutes here and there for other players. Rodri obviously started the tournament not in great form and missed his penalty last time out, but he's a quality player. He just doesn't have rhythm and form. Individually, you can absolutely make the argument that Spain are better than Italy in midfield, but Italy's midfield is working brilliantly and their depth have all been involved. Mancini has managed this tournament brilliantly. Mancini, for me, is the best manager in this competition. I'm not a fan of Luis Enrique as a manager. I think he lives off one season with Barcelona when he had the greatest front three maybe ever put together, two-thirds of the best midfield three ever put together, plus Rakitic. I think he lives off that. That Barcelona team under him got worse every year. He failed at Roma, he failed at Celta Vigo. I don't think he's a particularly good manager. I think he got very, very fortunate that his playing reputation got him a job managing a team set up to dominate everybody. I think the more influence he had, the worse that team got. So I'm going to give the nod tonight to Italy. I think they've got the better manager. I think back to front, they're a better team. Individually across all areas, I think their units work better. Defence, midfield and attack. I think Spain have the talent to beat them. I don't think there's a doubt in that. I just don't think Luis Enrique has made the best use of his team. 
of his squad, of those available to him. Now, they suffered a big blow before the tournament with Anzu Fati not getting back in time because of his knee injury. He would have started, you'd imagine. And he's he's exceptionally gifted. But I still look at that front three and think, oh, Yarzabal, Jared Moreno and Danny Olmo would be a better front three than Ferran Torres, Morata and Pablo Sarabia, who I don't think should be in the squad at all. I'm going to pick an Italian win tonight. I think they'll go forward into the final. Like I said at the start, I think they've been the best team in the competition. I think they're the best team. Full stop. We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got news and we've got gossip. Right. Welcome back. So, uh, Copa America semi-final. First one last night. Brazil won. Peru nil. Uh, Lucas Paqueta with the goal to put Brazil into the final. They will face either Argentina or Colombia. That game is tonight, 2 p.m. Sorry, 2 a.m. UK time. Um, so whatever your local listing is, that's when that is. Um, you'd have to fancy Argentina tonight. But Brazil go through. Watch the highlights. They were the dominant team. They looked the better team without question. Um Still think some of the the team selection is a bit bananas by um, by Brazil. This rotation of the goalkeepers, I don't like at all. Um, not really sure on Fred in the midfield too at all. Not sure why Everton continues to start or why Richarlison is first choice. But look, all things considered, it's worked. They're through. You can't argue with it. They will be favourites to win that final, I think, regardless of who they play. But I'm hoping that Messi can pull this one off. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not a Barca fan, not a, not a Messi fanboy or any of that nonsense. But I really do think it would just put to bed a lot of the nonsense about his international career. He's had a phenomenal international career. He carried a team to a World Cup final. They got beaten by a much better team. Simple as that. So I'm I'm just hopeful that he can get this one and then people can stop saying he's never won anything at international level. Um, and if he gets it and does does well, plays well in the final, then he'll have that over Cristiano, who, you know, was poor in Euro 2016, scored a few goals, went off injured in the final, and Portugal looked better without him and won the game without him as well. Um, in terms of news... There's surprisingly little. Um, there's a couple of articles on the on BBC. One of them is interesting. It's about Manchester United and the Glazers and whether the Glazers are making amends with uh, Red Devils fans, written by Simon Stone, talking about how, for the first time ever, uh, one of the Glazers spoke with supporters when Joel Glazer spoke with 11 fan representatives at the virtual fans forum at the start of June. And it's incredible to think that they've owned the club 16 years, and that's the first time they've directly communicated with the fan base. And obviously some people have been, you know, some people don't trust them, and and I think rightly so. I don't think they've done anything to earn the trust of the fans. Uh, We've seen different ways of going about this. We've seen... You know, the creation of another club. Uh, we've seen a lot of fans protest with the the green and gold scarves, green and yellow scarves, maybe, um, for Newton Heath. We've seen, seen some fans just not go anymore. We've seen the creation of, of Must, the Man United Supporters Trust. I think there are um, 50 or 60,000 People already signed up to that. That's That was started last month. It's a campaign for Manchester United to have a fan share in the ownership. And as I've said before, I think I don't think any of these things are realistic. Um, United are valued at £1.8 billion right now. To buy a 5% stake in the club would cost £90 million. 
90 million. So, I mean, it's just not a realistic thing. It really isn't. You look at even a club, say, like Newcastle, they're valued at 300 million. Their fans raised 100,000 to try and go forward towards buying a stake. A 5% stake in Newcastle would cost 15 million. So even with all their efforts to raise funds, they never got anywhere close. And I think it would be even harder for a club like United where the value is so much more, a club like Liverpool where the value is so much more. I don't think fan ownership works. I don't think there's any example of it working. People will point to the German model, the 50 plus one. But remember, the 50 plus one was brought in because fan ownership failed. That's what happened. Fan ownership failed in Germany. And they went from entirely fan-owned to bringing in private capital, wealthy investors. Fan ownership is a thing in Spain. Has anyone taken a look at the financial records of Real Madrid and Barcelona? The two clubs who draw more money commercially than anybody not called Manchester United? Barca are over a billion in debt. Real, they're not far behind. Fan ownership doesn't work. It doesn't work at the highest level. If you want to be an elite level club, if you want to compete for real honours, it doesn't work. It's as simple as that. And even in lower leagues where we've seen really good fan ownership initiatives, eventually, eventually they all have to seek those wealthy investors just to survive. Because that's how football works. Without money, you don't go anywhere. Like Crystal Palace, for example, they're fan-owned, but they're fan-owned by really rich men. And then they had to go and seek outside investment from the States. Can't think of the guy's name. He owns the Philadelphia 76ers and I think the New Jersey Devils. Is it Josh Harris? Is that his name? Is that him, Josh Harris? Yes, Josh Harris, that's him. Um, he's worth £7.5 He very quietly bought part of Crystal Palace. Fan ownership can't work. Their fans don't have enough money to do it properly. And fans don't also have, I don't think, the mentality to run a club properly. So, too many voices, too many differing opinions. I just don't think it works. What I will say is, United fans are right not to trust the Glazers. And even, you know, with the Sancho thing, that's clearly the Glazers breaking from their norm of not spending big money when United are in the Champions League. There's talk of Varane, there's talk of Camavinga, there's talk of other Declan Rice, among others. Let's not buy any of that as the Glazers turning over a new leaf. If it, if it becomes a yearly thing, then maybe. But if they do it once and then don't do it again, like they backed Mourinho, remember, as a sign of, look what we're doing now. We've got Jose, we're spending big money. And then they didn't, didn't back him beyond that, didn't get him the players he wanted. I, I have a tough time with the Glazers because... What they've done to a great club and how they've leveraged all that debt onto them and how we're 16 years in and United owe more now than they did 16 years ago when the Glazers bought the club. And yet the Glazers have taken a, a, the better part of a billion quid out of the club in one way or another. I think it's actually a billion and a half between loan repayments, interest payments and dividends themselves. I think I read it's a billion and a half. Their debt currently stands at about 650 million, 700 million maybe. They could have paid it off. They chose not to. Don't talk about it anymore. Let's talk about happier things. Transfers are always fun. Liverpool want a new Ford, um, and apparently Kylian Mbappe has been targeted as a, touted as a target. It is really silly season. It really is. Uh, Liverpool have been linked with Insignia. 
So there is a report from, I think, um, Area Napoli that Insigne could be for sale this summer. Uh, he is seeking a new contract with Napoli, which he wants like 100 grand a week after tax. That has stalled. And with a year left in his contract, there's some talk that Napoli could look to sell. Um, Liverpool w- won't be buying him. Let's be very, very clear. Oh, big news. Ralph Raniak has signed a contract to become the sporting director of Locomotive Moscow. So having been linked with a number of jobs, I'm a little bit surprised that that's where he's gone. I have to say I'm a little bit surprised that that's where he's gone. He's, his official title is Manager of Sports and Development. So I'm guessing he will have free reign at Locomotive Moscow. Now, they're part of not just, that's not just a football club. They're in typical Russian sense, and there's a lot of Spanish clubs do this as well. They've got a basketball team. They've got a rugby team. They've got a beach football team. They've got different areas. So if he's head of sport, I wonder will he oversee everything? Locomotive have played good football for the last few years, but obviously they're not Spartak. They're not CSKA. Um, So it's surprising that he's taken this job, but I hope he does well. I really do. I I hope he does well. Whether or not um, Marco Nikolic, the current manager, is to Ralph's liking, I'm not sure. Um, Won 52% of his games last season. So didn't do too badly. Won the Russian Cup, finished third in the league. Just signed an extension in May. So Ralph may be stuck with him. And he might be stuck with Ralph. He'll just have to he'll have to adapt. Let's put it that way. Because if you don't adapt to Ralph, you find your way out very, very, very quickly. Uh anyone looking for some good reading, there is an article on the Athletic if you have a subscription by James Horncastle, among others about the midfield battle uh, in tonight's game. It's really, really good. Well worth a read. Um, There's also a piece on Jadon Sancho. The tell, the versatility, and the eye-watering creativity. Here's what Manchester United are getting. Written by Raphael Honigstein and Mark Carey. I do like Mark Carey. Um, Yeah. This is actually quite interesting. Sancho played as a 10 more than anywhere else in the 1920 season for Dortmund. That does not seem right. That really doesn't seem right. This past season played much more as a right winger or left winger. Only 15% of his minutes came as a 10. I think, as I've said before, I think he's much better as a left winger. Not much better. I think he's better as a left winger than a right winger. But to get the best of him, you need an elite level attacking fullback coming from behind to help him. He's just a better player on the left. He simply is. There's also a very, very good article, actually, by Greg O'Keefe and Adam Crafton on what it's like to play for Rafa Benitez. Do read that one if you've if you're a Liverpool fan, if you've got a fondness of Rafa, if you're an Everton fan, that's really, really well worth having a look at. Um, there's not really, you know, there's not a whole lot of much, it must be said. Uh, Jaden Sancho has come out and said that he thinks Jude Bellingham is destined for the very top of world football. Sancho has been with Bellingham for the last 12 months, knows him very well. Apparently they became very close at Dortmund. Bellingham to me is... I still think Camavinga is the best young midfielder in the world, and he's shown a lot more thus far than Bellingham. But Bellingham's only had one season in a top-flight league. I think Bellingham is going to be an absolute star. The drive he has for midfield, his technical ability, his game intelligence is already well above where you'd expect it to be for someone that's just turned 18. I think when he becomes available... I think the battle to sign him will be incredible. Now, he turned down Liverpool and United to go to Dortmund. 
Dortmund for me, they've sold Sancho this summer. I think they sell Haaland next summer, either by getting Mino to do a new contract where they guarantee that they let him go for X amount and he gets paid a ton of money in, in the interim, or by just hanging on and, and letting him go for his buyout. I think they'll hold on to Bellingham till 2023. I think that's what their model will be. And then maybe Gio Reyna goes the following summer if he develops the way they're hoping he will. So I think that's what Dortmund would like. One big sale every single summer. That helps them balance their books, helps them regenerate the squad, bring in new talent, turn things over nicely, nothing gets too stale. Now, it's not great for building a team to win things, but sometimes you have to accept, you know, that that's just where they are as a club. It's unfortunate, but it just, it seems to be the way. Um, I think when Bellingham becomes available, I think there's going to be United, Liverpool, Chelsea, City, I think Arsenal will try and get involved. I don't think they'll have a chance because I don't think they'll be good enough. Spurs won't find the money, but they'll they'll sniff around anyway. I think you'll see Real in from. I think you'll see Bayern in from. I think Juventus might have interest. I think Jude Bellingham is going to be probably the most sought-after player on the market in 2023. At that point, he'll be just turned 20. He'll have three seasons of top flight action under his belt with the, in the Bundesliga plus the season at Birmingham so he'll have well well over 100 professional games probably 150 professional games under his belt he'll have a ton of caps by then he'll be scratching the surface of his talent he won't be anything close to the fully formed event that he's going to be but I think 2023 is going to be the summer of Jude Bellingham. I think you'll you'll start to see lots of teams sniff around him next summer. There'll be articles about how Chelsea are... It'd be the same as Allen this summer. The Chelsea journalists to be out saying Chelsea have real interest. The United journalists are the same. The Liverpool journalists say Liverpool don't have the money and can't afford him. Um, but everybody will start to look at him next summer. And then I think the following summer is when he'll move. And it wouldn't surprise me if he goes for well in excess of 100, 100 million. It really wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Tottenham are making moves. So they've bid for Takahiro Tomiyasu. They've been told the bid is not enough. I think they bid uh, 15 or 18 million pounds. They've been told that about 22, 23 is the fee for him. He's a good player. Uh, versatile defender can play right back or right in a three. Um, They've also been linked with Danny Ings. Ings has turned down a new contract at Southampton over the weekend. Southampton have apparently said they're happy to keep him, let him run out his contract and go on a free next summer if they don't get an offer that really, you know, takes the breath away. Some might say that's foolish, but they're so heavily reliant on him for his goals. And considering their ownership situation, you don't know that that money would be reinvested in the team if they did sell him now. So maybe their best bet is to keep him. Short, It's short-term thinking, obviously, but maybe it's the best bet for them. They've still got quite a bit of other issues they need to sort out in their squad. So maybe their best bet is to keep Danny Ings. Vestergaard is the other player that Spurs have been linked with. Now, we know they like Joachim Anderson. Um, that mystery player seems to have disappeared. There doesn't seem to have been a mystery player. Uh, the Athletic maybe were telling some porky pies, but we know they like Joachim Anderson. Uh, I would rather have Anderson than Vestergaard. Vestergaard's had a good Euros. Um, he had a good start to last season and fooled a lot of people into thinking he was something he's not. The rest of the season told the real tale of what he is as a defender and as a footballer. But if you're going to play a back three, he's not dreadful. He's not dreadful. And in a in a Nuno system, if you play him as the middle one in the back three, Nuno can hide him the way he hid Connor Cody. And then you can use his long passing as a real outlet, as a real function functional part of your team. 
I'd still I'd still rather have Anderson. But if they sign Vestergaard, they sign Vestergaard. Um, I'd imagine the Ing stuff is either... I, I can't imagine they'd want him as a Kane replacement, but maybe a Kane supplement. Maybe Spurs are going to try and show some ambition this summer. Harry Kane gave an interview on TalkSport last night. And I have to say, he didn't sound like a guy pushing to leave. He spoke very well about Nuno. He seemed very happy about the complimentary things that Fabio Paratici had said about him. He seemed like a guy with an open mind who might well be considering staying at Spurs and seeing what it's like under a new manager, seeing what it's like under a new structure with a sporting director. And if Spurs are making him promises, and and I think the only way they will keep him is to be honest with, with Harry Kane about what they can afford and what they're looking to do. And if they're going to be ambitious this summer, maybe that's enough to convince him to stick around. They've also been linked with Nikola Milinkovic now. He'd be ideal on on the right of a back three. That's the perfect spot for him. So whether he's an alternative to the Japanese player they want to sign, his name has just completely escaped my mind, or whether he's an additional signing, I don't know. But Milinkovic is one I would go for. I, I, I really like him. I think on the right of a back three, he's excellent. Um, and he's still in 23, so he's young. He's huge. He's an absolute unit. He's like 6'5", strong, quick, very, very good player. Rumours yesterday, of course, they're prepared to let Toby Alderweireld leave. So if that's the case, such is life. I am prepared as I've said before, to have my heart broken on this one. But there are more and more links appearing surrounding Saul and Liverpool. And I have it on good authority that there is real interest from Liverpool in the player. That there's an idea of what they would be willing to spend. And if that's if that lines up with what Atletico would want for him, then they would be willing to do a deal. I love Saul. I think he's as good a midfielder as there is in the world. As a complete all-rounder, he doesn't have a flaw in his game. He's brilliant defensively. He's great on the ball. He presses really well. His ball retention's good. His passing's good. Pops up with the odd goal. Now, yeah. Have to remember he's been held back a little bit by the the Simeone system. Simeone doesn't really allow his midfielders to play with much of an expansive nature, but even then, you look at his goal return: two thousand fourteen, fifteen, four and thirty-five. Then he got nine and forty-eight, nine and fifty-three, six and fifty-six, six and forty-seven, seven and forty-seven. This past season. Just the two. Um, But he wasn't starting as regularly. He still made 41 appearances, 33 in the league. But he was was a sub more often than not, uh, especially in the run-in. But he does have goals. He does have goals as part of his game. He can offer you that. So that's something I would take as a positive. You consider Ginny Wijnaldum over the last few years wasn't a, always a huge goal threat, despite the fact that we know he can be. You know, at Liverpool, 6, 2, 5, 6, 3. Um, Thiago's not much of a goal threat. You know, one or two a season is generally his bag. Same thing goes for for Fabinho. He'll get it one or two a season. Like, if we look at Jordan Henderson, who's the more attacking of the three midfielders at Liverpool... Say starting in that same 14-15 season, Henderson got seven that year. Since then, two, one, 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 four, one. Saul is a bigger goal threat than any of those Liverpool midfielders. In play and from set pieces. Liverpool fans remember he scored a goal against them in the Champions League a couple of years ago. 
Saul has more goals in his career than Jordan Henderson, which is quite surprising considering he's played quite a bit at centre-back, he's played left-back, and he's been a defensive midfielder in a Simeone team, whereas Henderson played more of his football either as a box-to-box midfielder on the right in an advanced role. Very, very little of his football actually came in the holding role. Probably two and a half seasons in total in the holding role. It's a little bit surprising how poor his goal return is. Only 30 goals in 392 games for Liverpool. 36 for his career. That's disappointing. One with Coventry, five with Sunderland, and 30 with Liverpool. Um, Ginny, like his career, he's got 114. Ginny was a really good goal scorer at PSV, at Newcastle. And when he joined Liverpool first, that first season, but it tailed off from there. Uh, I am prepared to get hurt over Saul. I, I love him. I think Thiago, Fabinho, Saul as a midfield three with Henderson, Naby Keita, Oxlade-Chamberlain and Curtis Jones as depth. I think that's I think that's ideal. I think that's really, really strong. Um, we'll wrap up with the gossip before I get too rambly. Um Spanish defender Sergio Ramos will have a medical in Paris on Tuesday. That's today, ahead of joining PSG as a free agent. P- Sergio Ramos and PSG is a match made in heaven. Um, really sorry for your troubles, Marquinhos. You're going to have to carry another fella for a few years. Manchester United are set to offer £50 million for Rafael Varane and £25 million for Eduardo Camavinga as they continue their summer spending. I don't think 50 million gets Varane, but I don't think it's far off what might. Uh, they will get laughed at if they bid 25 million for Camavinga. That's that's a fact. Um, Bayern Munich chief Oliver Kahn is optimistic about keeping French winger Kingsley Coleman at the club despite interest from in Liverpool. I don't think Liverpool's interest is all that strong. I think his injuries and some of his past behaviour would rule Liverpool out. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain have offered Lionel Messi a contract, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he's, he's staying at Barcelona. He's going to stay at Barcelona. There's just no way around it. Um, Spurs have held talks with Southampton over Yannick Vestergaard. Atletico Madrid's... This is weird. It's, it should say Barcelona's French striker, Antoine Griezmann, remains a realistic target for Manchester City this summer if they are unable to sign Harry Kane. Guy has just reminded me, and I missed this earlier... Brighton have made a very, very good signing. Brighton have signed from Red Bull Salzburg, Enoch Mwepu, who's a defensive midfielder, more of an all-round midfielder. Similar type of player, I think, to Basuma. But I think they could play together really well. Now, my assumption is he's the replacement for Basuma. But I do think they can play together. I think you could play the two of them and Jakob Motor together in a three and be really, really powerful through the middle of the park. Very, very good footballer. He's had a couple of good, impressive seasons um, with, with Salzburg. He's a Zambian international, born in Kenya. Quality player. Quality player. I don't know what they've paid for him, but he is a quality player. Um... And it's another another sign that Brighton do do recruitment quite well. Um, even if it is as a replacement for Basuma, I think it's a good one. If it's to partner Basuma, it's a great one. Because I think the two of them together will work very well. Um, Pep Guardiola says at the moment there is more chance we aren't going to buy any striker than buy Griezmann or Kane. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably true. I still think they'll buy a wide fort. And I think Griezmann fits better into how they played last season than Kane does. But, you know, they're not going to pay Griezmann's wages. Even City won't be that silly. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo is in talks at Juventus over a new deal. I doubt it. Juventus want to re-sign Paul Pog, but this is the same nonsense that was here yesterday. It's from the same garbage outlet, 90minute.com. Um, Arsenal's French midfielder... Matteo Guendouzi looks set to leave the club and has been linked with a move to Marseille. Talked about that yesterday. Looks like that one is a goer. It looks like it'll be a loan with an option to buy. 
seems to be what Marseille are doing, bringing in a bunch of players on loan, hoping that they'll get themselves into the top four or top three as it is actually in France, get Champions League and then be able to afford to buy these players. AC Milan are set to open negotiations with Chelsea over another loan move for Tomeo Bakayoko. Uh, I don't know that that's true or not true. Um, he's a good player. And I think I actually think Thomas Tuchel would be better off keeping hold of him and using him because I think he's he's the type of player that would fit under Tuchel. I think he can add something new to their midfield. But they don't seem really interested in doing so. He's been on loan now the last three seasons. What did he sign? A five-year contract? Five-year contract. Played the first year. My assumption is he hasn't signed a new contract. Has he signed a new deal with them? Yeah, so he's at a contract next summer. So Chelsea now need to either sell him or try and get him to sign a new contract, which he'll probably want more money, and then start loaning him out again. Uh, fair to say that one hasn't really worked out. The Athletic are saying that the fee for Mbwepu is in excess of $20 million, which would lead you to think they've got a big sale coming. Now, we know they're going to sell Ben White. We know Ben White looks like he's on his way to Arsenal. So maybe it's that money that they're spending in advance. But it could be Basuma as well, where he would go. He's been linked with Arsenal, been linked with Liverpool. I'm sure there's other clubs interested in him as well. Um, Liverpool are at the front of the queue for Paris Saint-Germain and France Ford. Killing Mbappe. Uh, that's just because they camped out overnight. They, 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 they're there with no wallet. You know, it's, they're not really there for Mbappe so much as, you know, they saw a queue and thought, oh, sure, I'll have a stand. Um, they're, they're not going to buy, they're not going to buy Killing Mbappe. Let's be, let's be really, really honest with this. Uh, new Crystal Palace manager is hoping to make Ryan Christie his first signing. Ryan Christie is a Celtic midfielder. I have, I have, I'm going to have doubts at that one. I'm just going to say I don't believe that to be true. Ryan Christie's a good player, but I don't believe he is going to be top of Patrick Vieira's list. Now, he might be top of Dougie Friedman's list. Or he might be one year left on his contract and his agent putting out the word that, oh, there's interest in him to try and get Celtic to force through a new deal. Um, Mikel Arteta is keen to keep Emile Smith-Rowe at the Emirates despite persistent interest from Aston Villa. They are now set to increase their offer having already seen two bids rejected. They're obviously getting some sort of encouragement from somewhere. They're not bidding for the sake of bidding. Uh, former Manchester City striker Mario Balotelli looks set to, re looks set to join Turkish club Adana Demispor with the 30-year-old hoping to revive his international career ahead of next year's World Cup Finals. Given his, given his historical relationship with Roberto Mancini, um, I'm not sure he's got much hope. Um, new Tottenham boss Nuno Espirito Santo wants to snap up Harris Seferovic. Benfica are looking to sell the 30-year-old this summer. Well... Let's have a quick look and see who Harris Seferovic's agent is. Leanne Sports Group. actually don't know who that is. However, what we do know is that George Mendes has strong connections at Benfica. And Benfica, rumours are, struggling financially. This group, the LIN Sports Group, Leanne Sports Group, also represent Nikola Milinkovic, Leroy Sane, Federico Chiesa, Kaladu Koulibaly. Interesting. It's quite interesting. But my guess is that Benfica have been on to Mendes and said, look, we need a buyer for this fella. Try and find him somewhere to go. Uh, last bit then. Inter Milan are hoping to sign Liverpool left-back Costas Simicus. Yeah, he's not going to be for sale this summer unless you blow Liverpool away with an offer. Um, he might not have played a whole bunch last year. That had far more to do with the centre-backs than with um, 
than with him. If, if Virgil van Dijk had been fit, he would have played 20 games last year and across all competitions. So, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, we'll leave it there. There's not much else to do. We've rambled out an hour out of this one. Um, Spain, Italy, 8 p.m. I think it's going to be a good game. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about that, to preview England, Denmark, and then anything else that comes up. Take care of yourselves. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.